Second Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse one. Here's what the word says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we are, but, but, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in the previous chapter, chapter 3, Paul uses the reference of veiled being veiled, not being able to see clearly or having your face covered. And he uses that here. And, and, and in chapter three, he was referencing um, Exodus chapter 34, where the glory of God, residual glory of God glowing on Moses's face after being in the presence of God was so, uh, was so frightful to the people that they asked him to cover his face. And of course, we know veils or covering or barriers to the glory of God are, are prominent throughout the Old Testament. So Moses veiled his face, but even as, as God gave instructions for the tabernacle and later the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwelt, was separated from everyone else by a thick veil, a, a, a curtain that separated men from God. The gospel of Jesus, that veil is no more. In chapter 3, Paul says that we are welcomed into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. Now in chapter 4, he's speaking about those who have yet to see the light of the gospel. And, and frankly, Paul knew what he was talking about. Now, Paul began life not being named Paul. He began life with the name that his parents gave him of Saul. And from a very early age, Saul had given himself to being a very intense Pharisee, a law keeper, and apparently he was good at it. And early in his career, I think that's the right word to say, Paul was advancing rapidly to becoming a superstar, a well-known person in the, in the ranks of those who were were Pharisees, and primarily the way he was rising in the ranks was he was taking the lead in persecuting Christians. We first meet him in the testimony of Scripture in Acts chapter 7, and it's not a good moment. In Acts chapter 7, one of the early leaders of the church, Stephen, was stoned to death uh, for preaching the gospel. And the Bible says that Paul, excuse me, that Saul at that moment was in hearty agreement to the, the execution, the, the martyrdom of Stephen. And it says that the, the coats of the men who threw the, the stones that took Stephen's life, they, they, they basically laid him at, at Saul's feet. He was the, the coat uh, watcher. He was watching their garments as they, 
they killed beloved Stephen. He would grow in notoriety for his persecution and eventually would request of the high priest authority to arrest Christians and haul them back to Jerusalem. He received that authority. And after having received the letters that gave him permission to do just that, he made his way to Damascus. And the Bible tells us that he was, was breathing murderous threats to Christians all throughout the land. But something happened to Paul on the way to Damascus. Saul saw the light and became Paul. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9, and as he went on his way he, and, and approached Damascus, he, a, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, so physically open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul's physical blindness would result in spiritual sight. God would send a Christian named Ananias to, to Saul to pray for him. In, in verse 17 of that same chapter, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, that's a big word, Brother Saul, this is the persecutor of the church, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Once God removed the veil of blindness from Saul's eyes, God changed his name to Paul and for the rest of his life would, would be given to preaching the gospel of Jesus. So Paul knew what it was to be blinded to the truth. He knew what it was to be blinded to who Jesus is. And he knew what it was to be confronted and to see the gospel light and how that forever ever changes who you are. So from these first six verses, I want us to see these things this morning. Number one, I want us to, to, to look at where Paul gives the evidence of conversion. So he speaks about his own evidence of conversion and, 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 and gives that as, as a testimony for the legitimacy of what he preaches and his ministry. And those, so, those same evidences of conversion, dear friends, ought to be part of your life as well. Number two, he recognizes that the work of Satan that Satan's effort is to blind you, the world, to truth. You may wonder today, how is it that such absurdity of rebellion can be accepted as normative and right? Well, friends, it's because the same old thing is happening today as it did in the first century, and that is that Satan is actively blinding the world to the truth. And then lastly, and here's the good word of hope this morning, and that is that God gives grace 
to see the light. And once you've seen the light of the gospel, you are never, ever, ever the same again. But let's begin with the evidence of conversion. And that's in the first two verses of this chapter. And, and Paul says in, in verse one, therefore, having this, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, for all the persecution, for all the lying about his ministry, for all the, the difficulties that he's had, he says, I, I'm, not, I'm not discouraged in any way. He says, um, but by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of, of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, a couple of things he says here about the evidence of his conversion. First of all, he says we, that he has rejected sinful behavior. He's rejected sin in his life. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul declared that with, with an unveiled face, he, along with all true believers, had beheld the glory of God and was being transformed into the same image of Christ. That's how, he end, that's how the, the chapter 3 ends. Now as he begins, this continues his defense, um, he, 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 was, he, he talks about how he has rejected sin. Those two things go together. Being made conformed to the glory of Christ is connected to rejecting sin. You cannot be being conformed to Christ and continue in sin. In chapter 3, he was defending his ministry against those who accused him of lying and seeking his own personal gain. Now in chapter 4, it's the continuation of this defense. And he says, it's not discouraged because of the glory of Christ and the mercy of God. He's not discouraged because he's confident in the calling of God to preach the gospel and the testimony's conversion. And as he defends his ministry, he points to the evidence of true conversion. And the very first evidence of true conversion is that he has been transformed by the, that he's been transformed by the salvation of Jesus is that he has a new relationship to and with sin. Now Paul uses two words here describing his new relationship with sin. He uses the word renounce, and he uses the word refuse. Now, the word that is translated as renounce in the English standard means to be, be determined to avoid doing something. The word that is, uh, that is translated as refused, the, the, the best way I could describe this is to not live or to unlive. Because the word, the Greek word is to live or behave in a customary manner. But like, like in our English vernacular, if you put an un or in front of a word, undo, it makes it negative of whatever the word, the, the root word there is. And so the idea is to not live or behave in a customary manner with, with, with a focus upon continual action. In other words, actively rejecting, actively refusing to do those things that are sin. Listen to me carefully. It is not that, Christian, that a Christian no longer struggles with sin and temptation. Brothers and sisters, regardless of how long you have walked with the Lord, you will continually, as long as we live this side of heaven, struggle with the temptation toward sin. But those who have been transformed by the, by the grace of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, Listen to me carefully. Those who have been truly transformed no longer welcome, no longer make plans for, no longer invite, and no longer love sin in their life. It may be a struggle. It may be a temptation, but it's not a love. It's not a welcomed thing in your life. 
A transformed heart rejects sin. In other words, you work against it. You work to, to, to remove it from your life. The, the old Puritans used to use the word mortification. In other words, they're trying to kill sin in their life. A transformed heart refuses to continue in sin. Because once you've been saved by Jesus, you're no longer bound to it. You're no longer enslaved to it. You're no longer ob obligated to it. So brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. It is impossible to love Jesus and be transformed by grace and to remain in sin willfully. Reject sinful behavior. And then he secondly, he says, and we refuse to tamper with God's word. So in other words, he says, we are organizing our lives. We are, we are, we are fashioning our lives to be obedient to God's word. In verse 2, Paul says that there are two things that he refuses to do. Practice cunning, lying, deception, sin, and tamper with God's word. Now, God's word testifies to the glory and to the righteousness of God. Therefore, it will always be in conflict with our sinful desires. President Thomas Jefferson famously created his own Bible. You likely have heard of it. It's oftentimes referred to as the Jefferson Bible, but frankly, it was no Bible at all. In the days before computer editing, Jefferson physically took uh, scissors and cut out anything out of the New Testament he found objectionable. And basically, he found objection to every miraculous work that Jesus did. Most sadly, his Bible ends with Jesus dying on the cross. There is no reference to the resurrection at all. What he created was a testimony devoid of Christ that can rise from the grave or save wicked sinners from their sin. Friends, since Genesis 3, sinful man has desired to ignore, to reject, or even edit God's word. Thomas Jefferson was just in a long line of those before him who attempted to do the same thing. And dear friends, even today, there are many who are attempting to do the same thing. Tamper, edit, change the Word of God. Presently, the absurdity of those who are attempting to be uh, accepted by the world while at the same time claiming to be Christians flow, this, this flows from their rejection of God's word. When they, when they try to do those gymnastics of being accepted by the world and claim to be Christian, at some point they have to say, this portion, that section, this chapter does not apply to me. But friends, those who have been transformed by the gospel light cannot deny nor tamper with God's word. Those transformed by the gospel light live according to God's word and proclaim faithfully God's word. They understand that it is life is found in God's word. Reject sin. Obey God's word. And he also says to give public testimony. Look at the last part there of the second verse. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The last part of verse 2 is Paul's final defense of his ministry. And he commends himself to the inspection of the church in the sight of God. Now, it's careful to understand this. He, he's not submitting himself to the judgment of man. So he's not saying, 
if you determine me right or wrong, then that's going to be the final judgment. Rather, he is inviting the church to see for themselves what God has done in his life. The evidence of God's transformation in your life, listen to me, should be, must be evident to all. Now, it may not be welcomed by all, and it may even be hated by the world, but it must be obvious. Now, an honest word here is if you're a new believer this morning, and it's very recent in your life that Jesus has transformed you, then it's likely that most of your friends and family may not be Christians. And so if you're a recent convert, rejecting sin, obeying God's word, and most of your relationships, friends and family don't know Jesus, they may not welcome they may not celebrate the changes that Jesus is making in your life. In fact, they may hate that you no longer participate in sin with them. There may be some things that you and them used to enjoy doing that you no longer do, and they don't like that. They may miss the old you. They may accuse you. In fact, if you've heard this, celebrate this. They may say to you, you've changed, and they're not wrong. Friends, endure the ridicule, but do not hide what God has done in your life. If Jesus has transformed your life, you have changed. Amen? You no longer walk, talk, or look the way you used to look. And those who love the way you used to walk and talk and look will not necessarily welcome the change. And what I'm saying is that, 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 that you must give public testimony. The world may not like what you're becoming, but you cannot. Be, but what you're becoming must be obvious to the world. When you've been transformed by Jesus, that's not a private secret thing. That's something that cannot be hidden. You are being transformed into the glory of the image of Christ. There's no way to cover that, dear friends. For Paul, he knew that some in the church were accusing him of having false motives. And so he invites them to examine his life. He welcomes them to witness his obedience. He welcomes them to take note of his suffering for the gospel and for the church. Those who have been transformed by the gospel light are a testimony to the power of Christ to change and to save. Now in verse 3 and 4, Paul recognizes that there are some who are veiled, who do not see the truth of the gospel. And, he, and, he, and he's recognizing that that we're not in a benign reality. We're not in a neutral situation. In fact, he says the God of this world, or Satan, is actively working to blind those who are perishing. He says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Just a couple of things about Satan's efforts to blind. First, he is working to blind the lost or the perishing from seeing the truth. In the previous chapter, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, but their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul further explains in chapter 4, verse 3, that if the gospel that he preaches is veiled, it is veiled to the perishing by Satan. Now, friends, when you are blind to the truth, there are two dangerous realities. The first is you are perishing. In other words, if you are blind to the gospel truth of Jesus, the state of your soul is to be under the condemnation of God. You are condemned. You are perishing. Oh, hell's flames may not be licking at your feet yet, but your, your future is already determined by the condemnation of your life. You are, by definition, perishing. And secondly, you don't know that you're in danger. Today, the openness of rebellion to God's truth seems to be unconstrained. Fornication and adultery are celebrated. And at very baseline, there, there seems to be no cultural concern about either. Sexual perversions are ever-expanding. In fact, they have become to expand and grow so much that whatever you thought was the norm today is passe by tomorrow. And you, the terminology of sexual perversion, you can't even keep up with because it is expanding so rapidly. Rebellion against God's created order by rejecting the reality of gender has become the expectation of our culture around us. Paul explains this by saying that Satan has blinded the world to the truth. But listen to me carefully. Believing a lie does not change the reality of truth. Sin is sin no matter what the world says. Sexual perversions are rebellion against God no matter how well or much they are celebrated by the world. Gender is determined not by the individual but ordained by the created order of God and it doesn't matter what anybody says. Believing a lie allows you to reap the destruction of the lie without concern. In other words, you can be perishing under the wrath of God while whistling a happy tune because you don't know the danger that you're in. Because of the blindness of Satan, the world is under the wrath of God while thinking and believing all is well. Satan blinds from seeing the truth, and he blinds from seeing the glory of who Christ is, the glory of Christ. It is hard. It is hard to imagine anyone rejecting rescue from certain and known danger. The seafarer who fell overboard doesn't hesitate to, to reach for the hand of the Coast Guard swimmer when they come to pluck them out of the sea. A child does not hesitate to run toward a familiar face when they find themselves lost in a crowd. The hungry person does not turn down a good meal. 
The thirsty don't refuse a a cup of clean water. The perishing do not turn away from the glory of Christ once they see it. So Satan works to blind the minds of the unbelievers from the light of the gospel because once anyone beholds the glory of Christ, all the things of this world lose their brilliance. I wonder if Paul was thinking of his own testimony when he wrote these words. I wonder if he had in his mind that experience on the road to Damascus, that brilliant light, being confronted by Jesus, being physically blinded, and only when he confessed in faith upon Jesus was his sight restored. Everything about who he was and gave his life to was changed the moment that he beheld the glory of Christ. Now, being blind does not change the facts. This is a careful point to make. Being blind does not change the facts. It only changes your ability to know the truth. The glory of Christ is everlasting, from eternity to eternity, never fading and never ending. Whether or not you acknowledge the glory of Jesus does not diminish or take away anything of his glory. He has, he is, and he will forever be glorified in, his, in who he is and his character and his nature. So being blind to the glory of Christ does not diminish his glory. It simply removes your ability to recognize it. To be blind is to be unable to see what is true. Satan is actively working to blind the lost from seeing the glory of Christ. To see the glory of Christ is to see your need for redemption, to see the worthiness, the worthlessness of your efforts, to see the glory and perfection of God, and to see the hope of salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, friends, listen to me carefully. Every moment of every day since Genesis 3 until Jesus returns, we are in an active battle for the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. Satan is actively working to blind, to hide from the eyes and the hearts of the world the glory of Christ. But there is grace. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 5 and 6, Paul turns his attention to some very good news. He says in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Grace to see the light. God gives grace first to see Jesus. Paul makes very clear that he's not preaching a message to elevate himself. He is preaching, he's not preaching a message that that he could accomplish anything for himself or that he could accomplish anything on behalf of the church. Paul recognized that it was only by the grace of God that he had beheld the glory of Christ unto salvation. And he understood that it was his calling to proclaim Jesus for Jesus' sake to the world. We live in a day saturated 
by self-promotion and public relations. It used to be that branding, the word branding, and to have a brand was something that only the largest of companies gave any attention to. And today, individuals talk about having a personal brand. Maybe you don't spend much time on social media, media sites like YouTube and Instagram and and, uh, TikTok and those sort of places, and that's probably good for your soul if you don't. But if you did spend much time on those places, you would find um, influencers and people who are building personal brands. Come along with that. Their, their T-shirts and logos and all the other things that they've, they've created to, to brand themselves in a, in a self-promotion, public relations world. And in this world of self-promotion, it seems that many are seeking to draw attention to themselves and build their own ram of influence. This is the world of social media. But before you think, well, that's just them, I think many in the church have given unhelpful attention to presenting a, a brand to the church that is more about promoting themselves than promoting Jesus. Listen to me carefully. It does not matter. One iota, if anybody ever remembers Central Baptist Church. It doesn't matter one scintilla if anyone ever remembers the name Ben Smith. The only thing that matters is Jesus. Forget the preacher. Hear what he proclaims. Jesus. Forget the ministry. Hear what we proclaim. Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not preaching Paul, I'm preaching Jesus. I'm just a servant of the one for whom I proclaim. Salvation begins with the grace of God allowing you to see Jesus as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those who have known this grace become servants of Jesus, pointing others to him. Oh, friends, if I build a brand around my name, I've done nothing but self-promotion. If we as a church build a, a, a kingdom around drawing people unto us, we've done nothing but draw a crowd. But if we bring people to Jesus, we change eternity for eternity. Amen. So the gospel The grace to see the light is first to see Jesus and then by seeing Jesus, seeing to see the truth. That's what he says in verse 6 where he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God allows the gospel light to shine into your heart, It illuminates the truth of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the physical world, light reveals what is. And so the more uh, more light, the, the brighter the light, the more you see and the clearer the truth of what you see is revealed. If you need to see something intricate and small, you bring more light. You focus it in on that area 
so that you can see. The gospel light gives you the ability to see the truth. The truth of who Jesus is. The truth of what Jesus did. The truth of how Jesus rose from the grave. The truth of the hope of salvation. The, the truth of the promise of eternity in heaven. And the truth of the power of God to accomplish all that he has promised. In blindness, you believe lies. But in the light, you know the truth. In blindness, you are confident in your own judgment. But in the light, you know what, con what condemns and what sets free. In blindness, you are sure you know where you are. But in the light, you know the way to God. Knowing truth is only revealed through the illumination of the gospel light. Once you've seen the light of truth, you can never again believe a lie. Many of you have heard me tell stories and, and my love for my favorite hometown restaurant, Dinglewood Pharmacy, lunch counter. And if you're truly a Columbus native, now those of you who aren't from Columbus, you won't know anything about this, but if you are truly a Columbus native, then you'll know that there are two ways to enter the, the restaurant parking lot. Of course, you can, you can enter the way regular folks do, which is come down Winton Road, that's the front of the restaurant, turn in the main entrance to the parking, or there is a single lane alleyway behind the restaurant that, that, that stretches between the two side streets that local folks know about and, and can enter the back of the, the parking lot. Now, I've known all of my life that the alleyway, alleyway back there was a one-way alleyway. And because of the direction I most often uh, come to the restaurant from, I generally, most of my life, have entered the restaurant parking lot through that one-way, single-lane alleyway. Now, I got to tell you, sometimes I get a little frustrated with drivers who don't do right. And one of the things that has always frustrated me about that alleyway is some people, when they're leaving the restaurant, will go the wrong way down the one-way alley. And so when you're coming in and somebody's going the wrong way, then one of you has to back up. And usually it's the person like me coming in, so you have to back up. And the whole time I'm backing up, I'm thinking if they would just go the right way, everything would work well. Just a few years ago, I was home visiting my parents in Columbus. And it just so happened that my sister and brother-in-law were there too. And we were discussing our favorite restaurant. My brother-in-law, Adam, is a connoisseur of Dinglewood Pharmacy. He also grew up in Columbus. And for a while, his office was right across the street from the, the pharmacy. So he ate there quite a bit, probably ate there more than, than I did. We were talking about Dinglewood and how we love it. And somehow in the course of the conversation, the, my, my frustration about the alleyway and people going the wrong way down a one-way single lane alleyway came up and Adam wholeheartedly agreed with me. Absolutely, that is, that is frustrating. Why don't people just go the right way? But as we discussed 
this alleyway, it became apparent that we disagreed about which way was the right way. And I was confident, been confident my whole life. I said, Adam, I have, I'm born and raised in Columbus. I've been going to Inglewood Pharmacy since before I was born. I know the right way. You know what Adam said to me? Ben, I'm born and raised in Columbus, Georgia. I've been going to Inglewood Pharmacy since before I was born. And I said, no, Adam, you come from this way. And Adam said, no, you go from that way. We were both confident in our belief that we were right, but only one of us could be correct. So you know what we did. The very next day for lunch, we made plans to go to Dinglewood. We went to Dinglewood. We went in the front way, the main entrance, Swinton Road. We parked and we got out. And before we went in for lunch, we decided we'd go over to the side street because Adam said there were signs there that said which way was the right way. I wasn't worried because I knew I was right. And when you're right, you can be arrogant. So we went into the side that I believe was the right way that you enter. And when we walked up to that side, there was a sign that said, do not enter. I thought, this cannot be right. So I said, well, let's go, let's walk across the block to the other side, the exit in my belief, and see what it says there. And we walked over there, though it was somewhat obscured with old growth shrubbery, there was a sign that said, one way entrance. I was wrong, terribly wrong. The right and wrong, listen to me carefully, the right and wrong had not changed. What had changed was that I had come to know the truth. I could no longer arrogantly go the wrong way, believing that it was the right way. And indignant of others going that other direction, I had seen the light. I knew the truth. And because of that, from that day forward, I have only driven the right way down the one-way alleyway. Friends, Jesus is the light of truth. He gives understanding to what is right and what is wrong. True and false. Life and death. In the very beginning chapters of Scripture, the Bible tells us that God, before anything was created, spoke by His command, light into the darkness, penetrating the darkness. That's what I think Paul is referencing in this chapter, thinking about God declaring light into the darkness and even today into the dark recesses of rebellious hearts, darkened and blinded by Satan. By grace, God is still speaking light. Oh, brothers and sisters, rejoice when God's grace shines the light of truth 
into the life of one who is living in darkness. Pray for the grace of God to shine light into more hearts. Pray for the light of the gospel to invade the hearts of those who are perishing. And rejoice when according to his grace, he does just that. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.